0: Hey everyone, welcome to the In Call, Out Call podcast, a podcast that focuses on Black men involved in sex work, hosted by me, Dennis Hardy. Throughout the season, we'll be covering everything from struggles to experiences and everything in between. So I hope you enjoy. Hello everyone. Thanks for joining us on this episode of In Call, Out Call. And today we're going to be talking about HIV criminalization, and we're joined here with Brad Sears. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: Do you want to tell people about yourself and how did you come into this work?
1: Yeah, I'm currently the Associate Dean of Public Interest Law at UCLA at the School of Law. I'm also a researcher at the Williams Institute, which is a research center on LGBT rights and issues impacting people living with HIV. But I really come at this work from my own personal experience. I'm a person living with HIV since the early 1990s. I was actually diagnosed with AIDS in 1995, right before the effective medications come out. So I'm a product of living today of those medications. And that was the same year I graduated law school. So I really dedicated my career to working to fight discrimination and stigma against people living with HIV.
0: Wow. know that last part, thank you for sharing that. So why don't we start from the beginning? how did states start to implement HIV criminalization, like laws around HIV? And what was the atmosphere that caused that to happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, you really have to go back to kind of people's fear and kind of bias about HIV in the initial days of the epidemic. And I I think we've had a good reminder of that this spring and summer with COVID-19. And if you can kind of remember back to the early days of COVID and right when the shutdown, where I feel like we just didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't really have information about how far it had already spread, how many people were going to die, whether our healthcare system could handle it. In the early 1980s, the primarily gay male community was experiencing the same thing—a disease where people didn't really know a lot about it at that time when it started. When it was first identified in 1981, we didn't even uh, had we hadn't identified the virus. We didn't know how it was transmitted. So there was a lot of fear. And then because uh, the people mainly impacted were first gay men or men who have sex with men, and then increasingly people of color and women, there was a lot of stigma around having HIV. The virus was identified in 1985 And the very next year, states started passing laws to basically criminalize people with HIV. And I'll kind of get in in a second kind of what those laws criminalize. But I think in terms of context, You have to remember at this time, people were being, you know, fired from their jobs. Nurses and doctors would not touch people with HIV. And in St. Vincent's Hospital in New York, they were kind of left in gurneys in the hallway to fend for themselves. Schools were being drained if a person with HIV was known to get in it. A little boy in Florida was kicked out of school for being HIV positive, and then his house was burned down. That's kind of the context of the passing of these early laws, and if you look at the legislative history, you will see that kind of fear and bias reflected in the legislative history. The first states that passed them were in the South, including Florida and Tennessee in 1986. But the real kind of gas got poured on in 1990 when the federal government conditioned federal money, the receipt of federal money for states for HIV care services on the states having HIV criminal laws. And from that point, you saw a rapid increase in the states having such laws. Today, thirty-four states have laws that specifically are targeted on people living with HIV.
0: Wow! And correct me if I'm wrong. When you get into the 1990s, the idea around HIV criminalization starts to change, right? Like in the 80s, there was, you know, this fear we didn't understand, but in the 90s, we understand it. And then you alluded to this in your introduction. You know, then there starts to be medication that now can treat people living with HIV. And I think that shifted the way we started to see like criminalizing HIV.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree. We had more information. I have to say that more information (laughs) didn't necessarily change how irrational the laws were. And and I'll give you an example from Missouri, which is the last state I, I did a study looking at the enforcement of these laws on. So Missouri in 1988 passes its first law. So this is before there's any kind of incentive to pass such a law regarding federal funding. It's pretty specifically tailored on sharing needles, which we know can transmit the virus, and having sex. They then amend the laws in the mid-90s and then again in 2002. So by 2002, let's see, you have effective medications. People have been on them since, like me, 1995, 1996. Basically, we're projecting people will live you know, long, normal, healthy lives. We know that HIV is only transmitted through certain activities involving certain bodily fluids. But what does Missouri do? It adds to sex and needle sharing, criminalizing, biting, spitting, contact with urine, feces. It expands the crimes to include sex work. It expands the crimes to include exposures to police officers or people in the mental health system, workers in the mental health system in Missouri. So you have this big expansion in the scope of the laws after we know a lot more information about HIV, after there's effective medications, but they include bodily fluids that we know that can't transmit the virus and behaviors that we know uh, can't transmit the virus. So while I think there is some trajectory with the science health shaping the laws, we also seen a lot of states, I think, kind of the fear and bias still driving the letter of the law.
0: And the expansion just, just doesn't happen in the United States. It also starts to happen internationally after, after 2000. Am, am I correct?
1: Yes. Yeah. Like there's countries all over the world uh, have similar laws. From what we know at this point, it's really the United States, for a while Canada and the UK that is responsible for most of the enforcement. Mm-hmm.
0: I want to come back to 2000, but I, I want to go back. You know, this show is centered around black gay men who do sex work. And I want you to just talk about what are some of the penalties that focus specifically around sex work. And also, when these laws are enforced, who are they enforced
1: on? Yeah, let me first just run through the different types of things that are criminalized. What we learned really just in the last few years about who is the most impacted by the laws. The laws mainly focus on four or five specific set of behaviors. And so the first is sex, and it's often consensual sex, where a person fails to disclose that they're HIV positive. In most states, it doesn't matter if the person, the alleged victim is already HIV positive or not. It doesn't matter if the person who is accused of a crime used a condom. In some states, it doesn't even matter if they disclose. So there's kind of one bucket around consensual sexual behavior. The second also involves sex. It's around sex workers. These statutes are probably the worst in terms of just criminalizing someone for a health condition. So for example, the statute here in California, and like most states, when we had it here in California, if you got convicted of sex work or solicitation, which usually is having a conversation about sex in an exchange for money or or something else on the street, you get tested in California or you used to get tested. If you're HIV positive, that was put in your record. The next time you got arrested, instead of being charged with a misdemeanor for solicitation, you were charged with a felony. If you were convicted of solicitation and they now know you're HIV positive, guilty of a felony. Instead of a few months sentence, uh, you're now looking at three or more years of a sentence. The next bucket of work still involves sex, but it's for people who have committed an underlying sex crime like rape or child sexual abuse, sexual assault. Again, there's a look at, did you commit the underlying crime? If you're HIV positive, a much higher sentence. And here I'm talking, instead of a sentence from three to 10 years, a sentence of 10 years to life, like a very large enhancement. Doesn't matter if you were having oral sex. Doesn't matter if you were having, if the sexual assault was with an object and not even a part of your body. If you're HIV positive, you get the higher sentence. The next bucket really deals with needle sharing as I described a few minutes ago. And then finally, there's a set of crimes focused on exposing police or other government workers to the virus. And this can be through spitting, through biting, some of the things I mentioned before, through what's called gassing, I think for people incarcerated, where you might throw urine or feces at a prison guard, none of those behaviors we know today actually can, or even, I will say even can, cause transmission of the virus. I mean, the chances are so remote, I would say they really can't, yet still felonies punishable by years of imprisonment. So that's just a chart of the types of crimes that are out there. Until the Williams Institute, where which I work for, started doing these studies on enforcement, I think the common knowledge was these laws are bad, stigmatizing, but rarely enforced. And when they are enforced, they're mainly under that very first group that I talked about, those focused on consensual sex. When we started doing these studies, we saw very different pictures. And so the studies involved doing public records requests from states and getting them to hand over the information about any arrest of any person under one of these HIV crimes. And then once we got that information, their entire criminal history. And this is what we learned. First, that there are just a lot more enforcement of these laws than we ever expected. So for example, I just finished a study in the state of Missouri. Up until that point, we had documented 13 cases of enforcement of these laws, either through the press or through reported court cases. When we got the data from the state, it turned out there had been close to 600 arrests, including over 130 convictions under Missouri's HIV criminal statutes. So a lot of arrests, a smaller number of convictions under the HIV criminal statutes, but still a lot more than 13. The second thing we learned is that the group primarily impacted our Black people. And I think, you know, probably the easiest way to understand this is you have a disease, HIV, which today in the United States disproportionately impacts black people. You have a criminal justice system in the United States, which disproportionately (laughs) targets black people, um, both black men and black women. And so when you make a crime in the United States out of that disease, there's only going to be one result the overcriminalization and incarceration of black people. And, and I'll give you some statistics in Missouri to just kind of walk through how that kind of plays out. Mm-hmm. So Missouri, I'm actually from Missouri. I grew up in Kansas City, is predominantly a state with a white population. Only 3.5% of the state population are black men. If you go to the percent of the people who are HIV positive are black men, that goes up to 35%. If you look at the arrests under the HIV criminal law, 50% of all arrests are of black men. And if you look at the convictions under the state's criminal law, 60 percent, actually over 60 percent, 63 percent of the convictions of these crimes are black men. So in Missouri, there is an arrest of a black men under an HIV criminal law for one out of 43 black men living in the state. And there is a conviction for one out of 77 uh, black men living in the state. This is the worst example we've seen of a disparity. Kind of based on race on the enforcement of the law, but is consistent with the other three states where we've done kind of a similar uh, similar study. And where are those other three states? California, Florida, and Georgia. In my
0: ear, I hear the audience saying, "Well, why don't people just tell people? So why don't so why don't you explain to people like what's the problem with this idea of like disclosure? Like, can people prove that they
1: disclosed?" Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, and I, I think that's a that's a great question, and so. The first is what, <laughs> just what you were getting at, whether someone discloses or not, most of the time, not always, as we know, when, when people are having sex, there's usually only two people there. Obviously, sometimes there's more than two, but most of the time it's a person and another person. So it's like, you know, he said, he said, he said, she said, she said, he said, like, I, I, you know, however sex up. It's two people. And so sometimes what we see is the end of a relationship that didn't end well, that results in a charge, not after kind of a one night stand, but after a long going relationship. And the criminal law becomes a way to express anger or even abuse uh, in a relationship. And as I said, in some states, disclosing will prevent moving forward with a conviction in other states, not. And then there are reasons that people don't disclose. They could be, you know, for a lot of women who are in relationships with domestic abuse as well as men, it can be a fear of disclosure from abuse from their partner. It can be a fear of rejection. Sometimes sex comes along after drinking or doing other things that, you know, changes people's decision making. I think for most people, having a big conversation about sex before sex is not something we've really been raised to do. I think think things have improved a lot, particularly with the Me Too movement in the last few years. But there's a lot of very understandable kind of reasons why people may not disclose every time uh, they have sex. And I guess I should also mention for the crimes most likely to be enforced, disclosure is not required. So you asked me about solicitation or sex workers, so I can talk to you about about that disparity if you'd like now.
0: Yeah, please, and I, and I just want to say you were talking about like long term relationships, and I don't know if you were references about think about what's a Robert Robert Subtle, and you know he was in that long term relationship in Louisiana, and then you know after getting out of it, you know his partner accused him of not disclosing his HIV status, then had to go to prison, then register as a sex offender, and all that. So these laws like have these like tremendous impact on people's lives. But yes, let's get into solicitation and how that impacts people.
1: Yeah. So again. Before we did these studies, and the first one was in California, we would have thought, so I lived in California. I've been, you know, the first article I wrote about this issue was actually in 1998. And if you'd asked me in 2015, which of these HIV crimes in California is most enforced, I would say, well, based on what we see in the paper, it's this one against uh, people who have casual sex or sex and don't disclose. Like that seemed to be the scenario that would get, you know, put up in the press. And if you'd asked me how many cases, I would have said, uh, you know, maybe two dozen in the history of this law, which was passed in 1998. When we did the study, what we found out that 800 people had been arrested under California's HIV crimes, and that 95% of the arrests were under the solicitation statute. So this is the one that bumped up the misdemeanor for sex work to a felony. So that meant To talk about HIV criminalization in California, you were mainly talking about the criminalization of sex work, and in particular, this enhanced penalty, which greatly expanded the sentences that people were receiving. That was a really important finding for the coalition that worked to actually repeal almost all of the state's HIV criminalization law. Because they decided once they saw that finding that there was going to be, they would never agree in the legislative process to any new statute that didn't repeal the law that was impacted on sex work. And like I said before, that enhancement, the bump from the misdemeanor to the felony from a sentence of a few months to a few few years or more, it doesn't require the intent for the sex worker to transmit the virus it does not require any conduct that could actually transmit the virus. If you think about when people get arrested for solicitation, it's usually because there's a cop doing a sting or on the street observing a conversation or having a conversation and then making arrest. It's not when people are actually having sex. So there's actually not even complete knowledge if the person would have disclosed later, if they would have used a condom, or even if it would have been a type of sex like oral sex that can't transmit the virus. So there's no intent requirement, there's no conduct requirement, and there's no requirement of harm, or in this case, actual transmission. Like I said, most of the time, the conduct hasn't even occurred. It's just a conversation on the street. So this is not only true of the enforcement of the solicitation statutes, but of all of these HIV crimes. The vast majority, and by vast majority, I mean close to 100% of all the convictions in the U.S. for these crimes did not require intent, conduct that could transmit the virus, or even transmission of the virus. And these are basic elements of what we think our criminal laws about. Bad intent, Mm -hmm. bad conduct, somebody gets harmed. None of those are required under most of these uh, convictions. And how do most states
0: find out whether somebody's living with HIV or not?
1: So <laughs> that's another great question. This varies by state, and, so, and has changed over time. So there was a, a lot of privacy protections about people's HIV status, like when I first found out that I was HIV-positive. Those have really been weakened over time. So now everyone's, if you're HIV-positive in any state in the United States right now, your name gets reported up through your local public health system, the city, county level, to the state, then to the CDC. There's kind of identification, or name's reporting all the way up. That didn't used to be true two decades ago. In some states, the kind of criminal justice system and the public health system overlap. So when you get tested, and this is true of, uh, of several states in the South, when you get tested, you'll actually be asked to sign a form stating that you know that you're HIV positive, you've been told that there are HIV criminal laws in the state, and you are aware of the conduct that can transmit the virus, and then you sign it. And so that then becomes a record that can be used later on if someone charges you or accuses you of one of these HIV crimes.
0: Oh my God. I did not know about that part that you have, after, you know, after you get your results, you have to sign this letter. I did not know that.
1: Yeah, it's... Uh, it kind of sets you up for being accused of this. It's also, and I think this is really playing out right now with COVID-19. It's like, you know, we need, you can't police your way out of an epidemic. Like you're not, you just, you know, it's just the criminal justice system is not gonna do it. And we've known that now for three decades with our experience of HIV criminal laws. Unfortunately, people are being arrested, right, you know, today for exposure related to COVID-19. We want people to engage in our public health system. We want people most at risk to feel comfortable with the public health system, to feel like it's a place they can go for support and care and information. And starting somebody's, you know, just imagine you just newly test positive and you're hit with a sheet of paper explaining why you're a criminal. This is, you know, it's not affected from a public health perspective. But it's, you know, it's unfortunately, we're seeing a little bit of that repeated this spring with COVID-19.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you just say it's, it's not affected from a public health perspective. Just want to bring home the point, like if, if, you're, if people are being criminalized for knowing that they have HIV, right? Like, why do I want to go get tested? Why do I want to have this knowledge, especially for people involved in sex work? Why do I want to do that? I want to ask you, what are some of the things people have been doing to change these laws and what are some of the things you're working on as well?
1: There's a number of ways to think about changing these laws. And a lot of the focus right now is just trying to either repeal or modernize them. So to say either these laws are completely outdated, let's get rid of them. So for example, there are laws that make it a felony to donate blood or an organ if you're HIV positive. It's a ridiculous law. The blood supply is tested. Let me tell you, if you're gonna donate an organ, <laughs> you're, you're gonna go through a battery of tests. The other person's gonna go through a battery tests, and most likely you're dead. So the, you know if you're donating an organ, so the criminal law is not gonna apply to you. It's a ridiculous law, they need to be repealed. I think there is some sense that if someone really doesn't have a bad intent, they really do something like if I say I want to infect people with HIV, I go out and have sex with people and people actually get transmitted, there should be some sort of penalty In that case, we're trying to make sure the latest in science, medicine, treatment, and prevention is reflected in the statutes and that the penalties are proportionate to what's happened. So if no one's infected, we really don't need someone to get a felony and spend years in prison. Like it can be a misdemeanor, which is a way before HIV, there were some states had statutes that had misdemeanors on the books for the transmission of communicable diseases. So we're trying to kind of go back to those pre-existing laws with much lower sentences and make sure they're based on the science of medicine. I think our research has shown that if you're in a state that isn't or can't pass anytime soon a state law, there are things you can do at the local level. And in all four states we've looked at, California, Missouri, Florida, and Georgia, there has been a concentration of the arrests and convictions in just a handful, and I mean three to five counties in each state. So, for example, in Missouri, a third of all arrests and convictions come from St. Louis City, and we were able to pinpoint the law enforcement agency in St. Louis City is the St. Louis City Police Department, which is then, of course, backed up by the prosecutors. That means the folks in Missouri, while they're trying to pass a state law, can meet with the district attorney for St. Louis, can meet with the heads of the police department, educate them, and hopefully have some guidelines put in place for when prosecutors won't pursue these charges. And prosecutorial training, training prosecutors about the latest in science and medicine and what actually can transmit the virus and not. Just doing that training, we think, is very helpful as well. I want to say something because this Missouri report was very interesting because it was the first time we were able to look at the behavior of specific agencies. And like I said, we were able to tell You know, you can change a law for the whole state of Missouri, but if you focus on these three or four counties, you could address most of the problem. We also saw a different pattern again in St. Louis City about how these laws were being used by a local police department. So Missouri has some laws, as I said before, that focus on exposing a police officer to bodily fluids, and then it has these kind of sex and needle sharing type laws. The exposing the police to bodily fluid laws have sentences of like two to five years. The other one's five, 10, 15 years. Here's what we saw, a pattern, a very recent pattern in Missouri. The police would accuse someone of resisting arrest. And when I say someone, in all cases by but one, the someone was a black man. So they would accuse these black men of of resisting arrest. And then they would find out that they're HIV positive and charge them with these crimes that were only punishable by two to five years either the police or the police with the prosecutors would then change the charge to the older statutes that dealt with sex and needle sharings, but had an ambiguous kind of catch-all phrase at the end that it could include basically any behavior. Those sentences were five to 10 years. And I think in almost every case, and this is kind of 11 to 13 different cases, uh, the men charged would then plead or be found guilty for the much higher sentence. So here we have the police using these laws in a way that I don't think even people in the legislature intended to slap these higher penalties on people for behavior that cannot transmit the virus. And that's basically related to resisting arrest. So I think that too points to the need of local strategies and education to stop that type of abuse. I'll have to say we've met with prosecutors and talked about them with these laws. When I say we, the folks at the Williams Institute and the Center for HIV Law and Policy, and they will tell us these laws are easy to get pleas on because basically the person just has to be HIV positive, particularly for soliciting to get the crime. So they like them because they can really, with the higher sentences, they can really pressure people into pleading as opposed to going to trial.
0: Wow. I think I read somewhere that overall, people who actually acquire HIV through the, you know, um because of like uh, a malice intent is like less than five percent right so like you're prosecuting people that aren't doing anything that can cause transmission or cause acquisition so it's really just to further stigmatize people with living with hiv
1: yeah i mean i would say five percent is probably too high i mean One thing about these laws is it moves us so far away from the message that you need to take care of your health and your sexual health. Everyone has a responsibility. Everyone should be having these conversations about consent, about STDs when they have sex. And look, sometimes people do it. Sometimes people don't. I think there are arenas for having sex where these conversations just routinely don't occur But stigmatizing people with HIV in almost what every case is kind of a mutual exchange before having sex. Just like you said, a way to get people to not want to be tested and not disclose. If I don't get tested, then I don't knowingly have HIV, which is a part of almost all these statutes if I don't disclose, my partner can come back later on and claim that I didn't, even though he or she knows that I'm made to be positive. So it it has a, a reverse incentive for the behaviors we'd like to encourage.
0: That was a great point. I'm thinking about people who don't live in states where they have criminalized people living with HIV. And I feel like some people will have this impression that like, well, in my state, you know, I'm thinking like Texas or New York, yeah. like we're good here. Is is that the case? No, I mean, it's,
1: Even before these HIV criminal laws were passed in 1988, people were still being charged under the more general criminal laws in their state for so like for assault or assault with bodily injury or intent to commit bodily injury. So there were pre-existing or there are continuing to exist crimes, not HIV specific, that people can be prosecuted for. So Texas kind of mainly by accident got rid of its HIV crime kind of early on people are still being prosecuted and charged under these other crimes. So one thing we tried to do, for example, here in California, is not only either repeal or modernize the HIV criminal laws, but also say no matter what you're charged with, you have to meet these standards in this new law, which means applying the latest that we know about transmission and prevention and requiring actual intent. You can't use some other part of the criminal code to try to circumvent what we're doing here. So that has to be a key part, I think, of, of any HIV modernization. I have to say, for groups working on this, it has to be essential that sex workers are not left out of the modernization effort. It has to be part of the plan that you consult with people who represent people with hepatitis, with other conditions. Sometimes we've seen these modernization efforts result in people with other conditions being swept into criminalization that weren't before the modernization effort started. So it's, I think, really important that broad coalitions work together of people with HIV, uh, sex workers, people with other conditions. I mean, like I said, this is one part of the over-incarceration of black people. I think it's important for all those groups to be in conversation early on in this legislative process.
0: I just want to ask you about one thing before we uh, wrap up. In 2000, we saw the United States classify HIV as a threat to national security. And then the United Nations followed suit. What has been the impact of this classification? And why do you think they singled out HIV in particular?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think part of that was just the kind of ability for HIV unchecked to destabilize, you know, big parts of the world. So there's a larger epidemic in parts of Africa and it has its impact on people who have sex with members of the different sex as opposed to the same sex is much greater. And so I think part of that was a way to start getting more resources focused on combating the disease globally.
0: But I think it's in the early 2000s, after that classification, that's when New York decides to prosecute somebody for living with HIV under like a biochemical weapon or something like that.
1: Yeah, and it's an interesting thread because I I mean, if you're thinking about the relationship between those HIV criminalizations and COVID-19, You saw the same thing happen here and actually the attorney general's office here saying that the federal bioterrorism law could be used to prosecute people who were exposing others to COVID-19. So a type of law that has really not applicable to the transmission of communicable diseases, but being deployed again against people with HIV and now COVID-19. Isn't that something? Yeah. With this moment of Black Lives Matter and kind of what's going on now, you know, as you know, you're all in Atlanta, like most new infections now occur in the South. HIV is extremely disproportionate the impact on black people. And there's, if this was not intent when these laws were passed, it sure is the effect today that they can be a proxy kind of for race, given the disproportionate numbers of people with HIV. And like I said, they do not follow other crimes in requiring intent or are, causation or transmission. And so I, I think they're very much today are operating with the impact of incarcerating Black people. Mm.
0: Well, that we are over time. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you so much for talking about this. It's really important. I, I really appreciate your research and everything you said today and everything you just do. We're on the same call like every month and I'm there. And I never say anything. I learned so much from you. Thank you. Can people find you anywhere?
1: I'm easily findable on the UCLA School website. My contact information is up there on the website, and and people are happy to reach out if they have questions or need more information.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, and I hope to have you here again.
1: Great. Thank you.